Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Good to be with you all this morning. Um, my name is Vince. I'm one of the elders here. I'm on staff at the church as well as one of the pastors. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're new, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, we have a lot to cover this morning. Um, it's a, a giant topic, but um, uh, and so we're just going to jump, jump right in. And get going. We've been working through a series over the last um, couple weeks here uh, called The Gospel in Life, where we are just taking some time to, to think about the ways in which the gospel actually does transform every aspect of life. As a church, our vision is to see the gospel transform everything, and we believe that that can happen because God is the one who's at work changing. If it were up to us, we'd be in a sorry mess, right? And oftentimes we try to grab it and we try to manage it, but it is up to God. And so um, we look to him for his help. And so we have, have, as elders, have talked about what are some some ways in which we need to see um, the answer to this question, how does the gospel change everything? How does the gospel transform all of life? And so we have over the weeks hit um, relationships, how the gospel changes those, uh, our leisurely time, the things we enjoy work. And then last week we talked about how the gospel uh, has the, um, the effect on our money, transforms the way we think about our money and possessions. This week we are going to, it's already been said, talk about how um, the gospel transforms our suffering. And um, the framework we've used to walk through each of these topics has been the same. What's God's intent uh, how, have, how did our sin and, and, and the effects of sin distort God's intent? And how does the gospel then affect or transform that topic? And, and this week, our, our suffering. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll be honest, in the beginning, Kirsten encouraged me to do this. I, we'll see if I can work through this. Uh, it, it may be, it may be um, some ups and downs. So um, let me just start with a few disclaimers. Uh, about how we think about suffering. I, I want to just hit a few disclaimers before we even jump into the meat of this. And, and here's what they are, just two. Um, as much as we don't want to admit this, uh, I, I think we need to, and that's this, that suffering is relative. Here's what I mean by that. Um, suffering is defined by the person who is walking through it. It would be extremely uncaring for me to question someone else's experience of suffering, um, to hear them and to know them and, and to see that they are suffering. You just have to, to say, yes, you're suffering, and I want to be there with you. And so suffering is relative. That's the first, first disclaimer. Here, here's a lighthearted example. We need some levity in this. Um, a lighthearted example is this. Let's just say, hypothetically, there's a family that has five boys. Um, and, and probably what happens in a family like that is one of the boys will punch, slap, or kick one of the other brothers in a fun game of punch, slap, and kick one of my brothers. Um, and the one who is punched, uh, slapped, or kicked will go down like a professional soccer player, writhing in pain, holding its shin. And the other brother who did the punching, slapping, or kicking will say, oh, come on, that didn't hurt. Now, what's happening there? The brother who punched, slapped, or kicked is defining the suffering that they ought to be going through, and that can't, that can't be, right? The, the su suffering is relative to the person who's experiencing it. That's a humorous example. Here's a, a ser more serious one. At times, Kirsten has wrestled, my wife has wrestled with anxiety, and she's um, agreed to allow me to share this, um, and, and I don't understand the anxious mind at all. I don't understand it. Now, I'm not saying I've arrived, so don't hear me say that. In fact, 
Probably just the opposite. I have not arrived. There are times when I have foolishly not thought about things I ought to be worried about. Right? And so I, I'm not saying at all she's less than and I'm here. That's not what I'm saying. Here's, um, I don't understand Kirsten's battles with anxiety. I just don't understand it. And it would be absolutely uncaring and unloving and completely self-centered um, for me to be in a place that I would belittle what Kirsten is going through because I don't understand. And I'll, just, I'll confess, I've confessed this before, um, that has been me more times than I'd like to admit. That I've, that I've questioned it and thought, oh, come on, just stop worrying or whatever, whatever it is, whatever foolish thing I would say. Listen, there are people in this room right now who are walking through some of the most difficult things they have ever experienced. And just because we haven't faced it, it doesn't mean that it's not real to them. Suffering's relative. And, and because of that, because it's relative, we just pass a mic to each person and they could talk about their, their form of suffering. Because it's relative, it's impossible for us to cover every aspect of suffering this morning. And so I've been praying that God would meet with you all in the places where you are suffering. Suffering's relative. That's the first disclaimer. The second one is this. Historically, we've been a fairly young church, uh, meaning many of you just started shaving like this week. Um. Uh, we are young. That's historically been the case. Now, over the last years, God has been very, very kind to us to bring some aged wisdom, right? Um, but, but the mentality of many young people is often we're invincible. I can get through anything. If I eat well and exercise and stay away from harmful things, I'll live until the clothes that I'm wearing now are back in style, Right? And just keep that cycle going. I'll just keep living. But I want to caution us, and, and, and here's the, the other disclaimer. Um, uh, suffering is inevitable. It's coming. And I don't mean to scare you. I don't mean like, hey, watch your back in the parking lot. That's not, that's not what I mean. I just mean that, that we're not invincible and that, that suffering is a part of what we currently live through, and, and you will face it, and, and if you won't or if you aren't, there are people around you right now who, who are. It's an, it's an inevitable part of what we live through, and many of you have faced uh, some extreme suffering over the last weeks, over the last months, over the last years. It's dragged on suffering th you thought you would never experience. Some of you can't shake the suffering you're going through right now just continues to hang on. You think it's gone, but it comes back, and it's back and forth. And, and if that's not you, again, remember there, there may be someone right around you, even this morning, or someone you know very closely who's in the midst of some very dark and lonely seasons of suffering. So just be aware of that. It's inevitable. It's a part of what we walk through. Those are the, the two disclaimers before we even get to the meat of where we're headed. Um, suffering. So here's the framework that we have used over the last weeks. Um, first, what was God's intent? Um, so God's intent in this, um, you remember from the very beginning of creation, what did God say after he created all things? It is good. After everything he created, he said it's good. Everything he has created was in its original form and in its original intent, good. Our relationships are meant to be good. Our leisure, the time we enjoy God's good creation was good. Our work was good. It was pleasing. A part of being made in the image of God was good. Money or possessions were good in that we saw very clearly that they are God's to begin with. And he has given it over to us to be stewards of it. All of that was good. And that's where God's intent in all of this ends, because we step in. Uh, what's happened? Our, our sin distorts all of this, right? We've walked through this week by week. God said to Adam, everything in this garden, I, I'm giving over to your dominion. I'm giving over to your care. You are to be stewards of all of this except for one tree. 
You cannot eat from that one tree, for in the day that you do, you will surely die. And you probably know the story. If you have been with us over the last weeks, um, you probably are tired of the story, but but here's what it is. Adam and Eve thought they knew better, and so they take those things into their own hands. They grabbed onto something that was not theirs, and they listened to the lies of the enemy and chose to eat of the fruit of the tree that God said, you may not eat of this, or you will surely die. Does God always keep his promises? Come on. I taught you this last week. Does God always keep his promises? He does. Our sin distorts. And so in Genesis 3, God comes to the man and the woman. He gives out curses to them. The ultimate curse was was the keeping of his promise. Uh, They would surely die. And here's what I think we, we often forget. Did they die instantly? They didn't, right? One bite of the fruit and, and stiff as a board, they fall over dead, like we see in some movies, right? They touch the, the Holy Grail or whatever it is, and they fall over dead instantly. That, that's not the way it happened. No, God said, you will die someday. But until then, relationship with your spouse will be tense, each of you looking to have power over the other. The very thing you were made to do in, the, in, in enjoyment work will become difficult, ineffective, labor-intensive, trying. Your leisure, your enjoyment of life will be strained. Your work will be hard. You will be thrown out of a good, enjoyable garden that God gave you to manage. You see what happens? Our sin has distorted all of God's good gifts, our relationship, our leisure, our work, our money, possessions, distorted because of sin. And on top of that... There is physical pain, right? Greater pain in childbirth and pain. We will eat of the ground all of our days. We will sweat and labor and toil painfully in our work. What is that called? Suffering. Suffering exists because of sin. Now, tie all this together with the disclaimers from earlier that that suffering is relative, It's relative, but it's all an effect of sin and and evil entering into this world. Suffering is inevitable, and it's happening right now to some in this room, walking through things they would never imagine. And often we face suffering, or we know of others who, who are facing suffering, and what happens? Questions arise. Questions about God. Questions for God. Questioning God doubts about who God is and his character. We just begin to question all of this stuff. And here, can I just say this? It's all so confusing. Confusing. We've walked through the topics of relationships and leisure and work and money and possessions and how the gospel transforms all things. But what if all of those things or even some of those things are taken from you? What then? How does the gospel transform your life then? That's the question we'll look at this morning. And I'd like us to look at an example of someone else who has faced suffering, asked questions, and had doubts in the midst of losing everything. A case study of the life of Job. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. Job is a book in the Old Testament, which is the back half of your Bible. You've got the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle, a big book. Right before the book of Psalms is the book of Job. Job chapter 1. We work through the book of Job in the fall of 2016, and so there's much more that we could work through. If you're interested in more detail, I'd direct you to our website. You can listen to those sermons there. I would argue that Job had relationships and possessions and wealth and leisure and enjoyment of good things and good hard work, that Job had all of the things that we've already talked through. And he enjoyed them, and he was upright. 
Look at Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that one of my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Listen, Job had all of the things that we've already walked through, hasn't he? Right Now, you may uh, never have 3,000 camels, right? Chances are. You may never have 10 children, although 3,000 camels may sound better than 10 children to you. But listen, we can relate with Job, can't we? Everything seems to be going his way. Everything. We've all been in places like that where it's just like, hey, things are moving, things are rolling in the right direction. He has relationships with his children and his wife. He has leisure, right? He enjoys the good things of life. He has these parties with his children. He has work, right, where he's gone and made these sacrifices. He's worked hard for, for these things. He has money and possessions more than anyone else in the land. And the story takes a turn, if you know the story, and the only reason it takes a turn is due to sin and the consequences of it. Satan, our enemy, comes to God. Listen, and God is the one who initiates the conversation. Satan comes to God, and God is the one who initiates the conversation. He says in verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? But we have to see it's crucial for us to see this in our understanding of all things, not least of which suffering. We, we could build a life's theology around this, and we ought to. God is over everything, everything. Right? Satan is not more powerful than God. God created us. Satan didn't. Right? God has authority and dominion over our lives. Satan does not. Satan does nothing without God's understanding, God's knowledge, and God's authority. Satan does nothing without God's authority over that. We've got to understand that. And it seems as if Satan understands that. It seems as if Satan understands the draw of the things of this earth, too. Satan believes that the only reason Job follows God is because God has given Job stuff. Look at verse 9, chapter 1. And Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, you've given him relationships and leisure and work and money and take all of that away and he'll curse you. Take all of the good things of life away from him and he'll curse you. Listen, friends, this is exactly what Satan desires for us to believe. Satan wants us to believe that we should follow God not because of God, but because of the things that God has given us. Satan wants us to believe that and Satan has a pretty good reason to believe that because that's often how we live. Things go well in life, and God is amazing, right? Things begin to crumble, and we cry out, where are you now, God? When we believe that God is for us only when things are going well, we're believing Satan's theology. God says to Satan, fine, go for it. Go for it. Everything in his possession then is up for grabs. And so one by one, a messenger of bad news comes running to Job. 
Just paraphrasing the way the story goes, the men from the south came and killed your oxen and your donkeys and your servants, Job. A, a messenger comes to tell him that. And as that messenger is speaking, another comes running in. It says, a fire of God fell from heaven and burned up your sheep and the servants near the sheep. And as that messenger is speaking, another one comes in and says, from the south, the Chaldeans came in three groups and took your camels and killed the servants near the camels. And even as that messenger is talking, another one runs up and says, while your children were enjoying their leisurely time, the things that they enjoy, good food and good wine, a wind, a tornado swoops in and destroys the house that they were in, and they have all died, Job. What did Job lose in, in one day, he saw the, the loss of relationships, his children. He saw the loss of leisure, right? parties with his family. He saw the loss of work, all of his livestock gone. He saw the loss of his money gone. He saw the loss of his own children. 11,000 animals, every servant except the, with the exception of the four messengers who escaped to come bring the bad news to Job. Every good gift that God had lavishly poured out on Job is gone. Now what? Look at what Job has to say. Look at verse 20, chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Oh, if that could be our response. Times of trial and times of suffering, Job grieves deeply. He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground, and he does what? He worships. That's not Satan's theology. This is not a view of a God who, who is required to give good things or else. This is not a view of entitlement. God, I'm comfortable now and, and you owe me. Just keep giving me comfortable things. Keep me comfortable in the standards of my comfort, my standards of my comfort. God, do that and I'm all in. Then I'll worship you. God, keep this lifestyle going and I'll worship you. I'll honor you. I'll, I'll, I'll obey you. I'll follow you. You owe me. I'm all in. It's not that. That's not Job's attitude at all. He, he knows that God owns everything and so he says God you you can give it's all yours to give God you can also take away because it's all yours to take so I'll just praise your name in the midst of it the suffering coming for for Job is not over yet if you know the story you know that um, Satan is again approached by God right by God hear that uh, Job is offered by God as one for Satan to afflict. Satan again says the only reason that Job trusts you is because he has good health. That's what, uh, what Satan says to God. The only reason he, he trusts you is because he has good health. It's easy to trust God when we have good health, right? Things are going our way and we'll just trust. One, one of the things that I think pushes us out of control most is our own health, our own safety, We've walked through this for two years, right? You can eat all of the right foods and stay away from all of the wrong foods. You can take supplement after supplement and vitamins and powders, and you can rub oils all over your body if you want. Listen, the stomach bug is coming for you, right? COVID is knocking at your door. And that's not outside of God's sovereign and authoritative will. It's not. We're told in chapter 2, verse 7, that Satan struck Job with sores all over his body from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job loses also his health. Not just COVID, right? This isn't just COVID. His health is shot. Not that COVID is, a, is just a light thing. Many of you have experienced it 
in, in really hard ways. But Job has experienced his health being gone, right? The suffering continues. Here's how it continues. His wife, the most trusted relationship that he has, his wife says, really? You're, you're holding out hope on this God? That This God? Curse God and die already. And what does Job say to his deeply suffering and deeply grieving wife? Hear that? We've got, we've got to understand that she's grieving. She's lost her children. What does Job say to his deeply suffering and grieving wife? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Men, I wouldn't advise that. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Hear this though. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And we think, oh, okay. Job's faced it all, but there's got to be relief coming. Right? Right? In the very next verses, when Job has lost it all, his children, his wealth, his health, lost the support of his wife, Job's friends come to sit with him. Finally, some relief, right? And for seven days they come and they weep with Job. And then it's over. For 36 chapters, Job's friends say, come on, Job, it's time to get over it. It's time to pick yourself up and move on. You, you sinned or something, confess, repent, let's move on. You've suffered. We get it, Job, you've suffered, but let's move on. And of course, in the midst of all of that, what does that lead Job to? Some questioning. Your closest people are circling around you and saying, seriously, let's move on. Some questioning, wondering about the character of God, struggling to understand why. We've all been there, haven't we? We've been there. Job's life, even though extreme in his suffering, for us is an example, a case study in suffering. God's intent for us was to be in right relationship with him, enjoying him, enjoying all the good things of this earth because he was the end of our enjoyment. That was his intent. God's intent was not that we would suffer, that, that sin would enter the world. So, so did evil, so did suffering, so did trial, so did hardship. Suffering is a direct result of sin and the consequences of it. Listen, I did not say because you sinned yesterday, suffering's coming to you tomorrow. That's not what I said. I don't think we can make a case for that. Now, of course, there are natural suffering consequences of our sinful choices, right? We drink to the extent of drunkenness, which is a sin, we drink to the extent of drunkenness. We've got a lot of things coming toward us, right? We've got a failed liver. We've got broken relationships. We've got failed one night uh, things that are, that are going on. We've got a string of consequences behind us. That's absolutely true. I'm not saying that suffering is a direct result of that sin that you sinned. But, but suffering is directly related to sin being a part of this world that we now live in. Job is an example for us. God said on multiple occasions to Satan, Job is upright, there's no one like him, he's blameless, try him. Right? All suffering is a direct result of sin's existence. So friend, listen. What you're walking through right now is a painful reminder that things are not what they ought to be. It's a painful reminder. So what do we need? We need a transformation. Right? We, we need the transformation of the gospel on our hearts in the midst of suffering, knowing very clearly that suffering as a result of sin ought to be a trigger in our minds to wake us up to a greater reality. C.S. Lewis uh, you probably know this, has, uh, has said um, uh, that pain is, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Or suffering is, is a part of, of life to, to rouse us, to wake us up. And so I'd like to be able to say that, that a deeper belief in the gospel will take away suffering. That's what I'd like to say. Hey, just follow these things. 
and, and suffering will be gone. Man, I would like to say that. If I had that formula, the last years of my life would be way different. Job tears his clothes and he worships God in the midst of suffering, in the middle of it. God allowed the suffering to continue. You hear that? Those things can be true. Job tore his clothes and worshiped God in the midst of his suffering, and also God allowed that suffering to continue. Paul, uh, the apostle, a man who believes the gospel more than any of us do, and wrote most about the gospel in the New Testament uh, than, than anyone else, walked through great suffering. This isn't theoretical for him. It's not like, hey, th- think about these things. No, it's like, here's what I've done. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just look at this list. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is a man who deeply believes in the truth of the gospel. So hear this well. A deep belief in the truth of the gospel does not take away suffering, but it will change our perspective in the midst of it. How? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to Close out our time. Now, don't get antsy because close out our time means about another 20 minutes. I'd like to close out our time with um, eight ways the gospel has the ability to change our perspective of suffering. Now, there's probably many more, uh, but I'd like to just give us some as tools to hang on to. First, in the midst of suffering, the gospel points us to the greatness of our own sin. We've talked about this already. When we suffer, we're made aware of our sin. Not, not just our sin, but the sin of the, the, the things that are out there. We've, we've seen that. We're reminded that we suffer because of sin's existence. When we suffer or we see the suffering of others in the world around us, it ought to trigger in our minds, re- remind us of the brokenness that sin has brought. Listen, that can be good for us. That's not just a downer. It can be good for us in this, that it, that it would provide for us an opportunity to confess our own sin. Or that we would say, God, in my suffering, I'm reminded that I'm living in a world affected by sin, greatly affected by sin. I'm reminded that I'm a sinner in need. Would you forgive me? So, In the midst of our uh, uh, suffering, the gospel reminds us of the greatness of our sin. Second, in the midst of suffering, the gospel reminds us that we are not in control that should get a hearty amen, that we're not in control, but we know a God who is. Think about Job's life. All right, God was all over that. Nothing happened. Nothing happened outside of the sovereign hand of God. And so when you face suffering, even now as you face suffering, you're certainly reminded, you're certainly reminded that you are not in control, but we know a God who is. God has plans for this. You you may never know what that plan is. You may never know what that plan is. Don't live this life out thinking one day I'll figure this out. One day I'll sort one day God's going to reveal that to me. Now he might. But you may never know what that plan is. Jesus our own Lord and Savior knew this truth that God was in control. Hours before he was to be killed, Jesus prayed in the garden, Luke chapter 22. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Our Savior rested in the plan of God. And we're beneficiaries of Christ's willing submission to the severe suffering of the cross. We're beneficiaries of that. That he willingly said, not my will, but yours. 
In the midst of suffering, the gospel reminds us we're not in control. Third, in the midst of suffering, the gospel points us to our need. We're in need. Right? We're in need in several ways. When we suffer, we realize that we're in desperate need, but often what we do is we just face inward. We just think about what we're going through. We just think about my life, my life, my life, what's happening, what's going on, because in our suffering, we're reminded over and over and over again that we're suffering, right? I'm suffering, and I feel it, and nobody understands this, and I'm in need. At times in our suffering, we're helpless to do anything to change our situation, And although it doesn't seem like it at times, this is God's good for us. We're in need of God and we're in need of of others around us. When we suffer, often our inclination is to pull away from community. I felt it. We felt it. You have felt it going through this. I don't want to weigh anybody else down. I'm going through this. No one else will understand it. I'm going through this. I don't even want to open my mouth. I'm going through this. People are going to see me cry like an idiot. I'm going through this. I'm not going to bring it out. So we just pull away. Isolate ourselves from others. In our suffering, we're reminded over and over and over again that we are in need of help. We need God's help. We need the help of others. The the beauty of Christian community is in knowing that Christ, our collective Savior together, our Savior suffered. And that because in knowing that our Savior suffered and knowing that that because of sin we will all suffer, we get to, to, to relish in that together. That, that we know a, a Christ, a Savior that, that has suffered. Others have been there, so we lean on them. We, we've got to remember what Paul says in Romans 12, where he commands us not just to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what we want to do. We want to wrap around those who are rejoicing. No, he also says weep with those who weep. We need one another. Fourth, in the midst of suffering, the gospel prepares us to comfort others. Related uh, somewhat to the previous one, we've got to believe that God uh, allows us, causes us to go through suffering so that we're able to comfort others. It's only in a a deep belief of the the gospel that we're able to look beyond ourselves. We don't want to do that. We just want to look in. Look beyond ourselves to see that there's a reason, and part of that reason is to comfort others so that we can, can be a part of that. Christ suffered and and he can sympathize with us. He can comfort us. Hebrews 4, uh, 15 tells us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us. He's been there. He can sympathize with us. He's been there in part so that we can be comforted. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? Read it. Okay, we're going to do that again. From the comma. <clears throat> so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Do we hear that? Does that hit us? Does it, do we resonate with that? Remember Job's so-called friends who in the midst of his suffering, they came yeah, to sit with him because that was their duty. But then they came to rebuke him and call him out and say, get over it, Job. Here's this speculation. Don't write this down. This speculation is me. Um, It's likely they had no idea what to do because they'd never faced anything like it. Haven't we all been there? I have no idea what to do, so I'm going to say the stupidest thing I can think of right now. Right? Your suffering is allowing you, preparing you to comfort others. We would have never chosen for one of our sons to face a catastrophic seizure disorder at eight months old with lasting effects. Wouldn't have chosen that. We would have never chosen to have Ezra walk through the stuff he's walked through, cancer and a bone marrow transplant and the ongoing effects of that. Stuff has wrecked us. 
And we're confused. Let's be honest. We're confused. We need you all. We wouldn't have chosen this road, but it has allowed us the opportunity to comfort others who are facing similar things. So I walk through the, the lobby of the hospital with different eyes now. It's absolutely part of God's plan for our suffering. The gospel prepares us to comfort others. It does. Fifth, in the midst of suffering, the gospel compels us to endure the mystery. Near the end of the book of Job, we're told that God answers Job out of the whirlwind. Now, we can't be certain, but even that language of whirlwind is communicating that God is, is answering out of something mysterious and unknown. He's answering, answering Job in some mysterious way, and he begins to, to question Job with unanswerable questions. Really what he's trying to communicate to Job is this. It's not your job to figure out why because you may not ever figure out why. In the midst of suffering, we've got to remember that we are not in control. We've already talked about that. That God has a plan. That this isn't a mistake. That, that, this, uh, that this may always be a mystery to us. But God endures forever. And of that, we can be certain. Of this, we can be certain that neither death, nor life, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, please, nothing, nothing. The deep truth of the gospel compels us to endure the mystery. Paul says in Romans 8, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the suffering now, even though we have no idea why we're facing it, it's not worth comparing to what will one day be revealed. Revealed. So we wait, and we endure the mystery of the unknowns now. In the midst of suffering, the gospel compels us to endure in the mystery. Six, in the midst of suffering... The gospel assures us that God sustains our faith. In the midst of the suffering that we're walking through, the gospel and a true belief in it, a right belief in it, assures us that, that God is the one sustaining our faith. And so many of you know so much more about this than I do. It's easy uh, to begin questioning. It's easy to begin doubting in the midst of unbelievable pain and suffering. The temptation in those times, I think, is, is probably to, to believe that, that I've got to work to keep this together. I've got to work and work and work to keep my faith going. I've got to do that. Now, it's true that we've got to keep seeking the face of our sovereign God. Don't hear me say that just let it go and we'll figure it out. No, we've got to keep seeking the face of our sovereign God, but it's God who is sustaining our faith. God who's doing that. He's got us. For the last 12 years and over the last seven months, I have no other answer than that God is sustaining me. People ask, hey, how are, how are you guys doing? I'm like, I, I have no, I, I'm here. God's sustaining me. I have no other answer than that. Aside from that, with what we've, with what we've walked through, and, and you all have walked through so much more than we have at times, I, I'm sure, what we've walked through, I would have been absolutely crushed. God alone is sustaining me. Throughout the Bible, we're, we're reminded that our suffering is producing endurance and it's producing faith, that faith comes as a gift from God. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, uh, after you've suffered a little while, some of you may not feel like it's been a little while, after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to, don't, don't forget this part, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. The God of all grace sustains our faith. He has called us to be a part of his eternal family because of Jesus. He will, he will, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and sustain your faith. Seven. In the midst of suffering, the gospel causes us to rejoice. 
Do we skip that one? You remember Job's words, the, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In that, Job is recognizing that God is over all, that he's over all of these things, and he can praise him, he can worship him. Paul, again, says in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There are so many places where, where Paul talks in these kinds of ways that we would rejoice in our suffering, not because of it, but in our suffering, not rejoice because of it, but in it, in the midst of suffering, the gospel, that's the only thing that can cause us to rejoice. A true belief in the gospel of Jesus would cause us to rejoice. Number eight, finally, in the midst of suffering, the gospel gives us hope for eternity. There's only one way that Paul can say rejoice. Suffering produces endurance, endurance all the way to the end where there is hope. This is the beauty of the gospel and suffering. And where does that begin? It goes all the way back to God's intent in the garden. Our sin that that, that has now flowed through us and the curses that were dealt. In the garden, Satan, listen, going to bring great rejoicing. Satan was also handed a curse by God. Genesis chapter 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the hope of the gospel. It goes all the way back to that beginning. This is the hope of of the gospel. One day the offspring of a woman, Christ Jesus himself, will be bruised. He will suffer, will come under the effects of sin and death, but in being bruised in his suffering, he will also bruise the head of the enemy. Do you get this picture? That that Christ Jesus will step on Satan and crush the effects of sin and death forever. Forever. Does God keep his promises? Yes. Jesus wins. That's our hope. We're we're looking ahead to something so much greater. The gospel impacts our lives now, but we're looking forward to what God will do. He keeps his promises. Jesus wins. Jesus himself says in John chapter 16, in the world you'll have tribulation. You will suffer, but take heart. What? I've overcome the world. Jesus wins in the midst of suffering. The gospel gives us hope for eternity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They're fleeting. They're gone. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Our suffering may seem harsh. It may not seem momentary or light to you right now at all. But in light of what Jesus has accomplished and in light of eternity with him, it's momentary, friends. It's momentary. Preparing for us a day that's beyond all comparison. It's preparing us for a day that that has eternity with Jesus in mind. The end of the book of Job, God restores everything and more to him. I think we look at that and we think, oh, yeah, that's coming, right? I think it's the the catch of Job. Here's what I want to remind us of. We have even more hope than what Job experienced in getting back all of that stuff. And here's why, because our hope is not in the getting back of things. Our hope is that Jesus is preparing us for something even greater, and that's an eternity with him. We need to be with him. The same Jesus who is making all things new, and he says at the very end of the Bible, listen to this, look at this. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
What a day. What a day. In the midst of suffering, as a result of sin, our hope is not in this life, but in the fact that God keeps His promises. Jesus wins, and suffering will be no more. Can I ask a question and have you respond, yes, even though we may not believe it now. Do we believe? Do we actually believe that Jesus wins and suffering will be no more? Yeah? It may feel hard to believe that now. We know it to be true from his word. God and Father, we recognize that you are over all things. We recognize that you're a God of comfort who comforts us in our time of need. I pray for my friends here this morning who are, who are struggling. That you would be very near and present. That they would sense your presence among them even now. God, would you do that? Would you bring healing where there needs to be healing? Would you bring um, restored relationships where that needs to happen? Would you bring comfort where there's grief? Where there's brokenness, God, would you bring mending? Where there's discouragement, would you bring peace? We realize, we recognize that we're walking in, in a life that's darkened by the effects of sin, our own, and the, the sin of others around us, and, and the suffering that comes from that. We recognize that, but we also recognize that Jesus wins. That one day He will wipe away every tear. And death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain, all of those things will, will pass away because of Jesus' presence. I pray that we would sense that comfort even now, that the gospel would be working on us even now, our deep belief in it. We pray all these things. In the name of your Son, amen.